despite not having a recipe for tonight, whatever you're eating, drinking, remember, it probably pairs best with a side of crime. And let's get into our episode for this week. Strangely enough, um, it's the KFC killer. And of course, I would have no recipes on the week that our murderer is named after food. Surprisingly enough, there are two different cases that involve a KFC killer. So maybe, I mean, I don't want to say KFC has bad juju, but I'm sound, this is sounding a little suspect. So the first case happened in the Detroit area. The other one happened in Kilgore, Texas, but I'm not going to talk about it this week. I'll save that for another time um, in Detroit. From February of 1976 to March of 1977, in Oakland County, Michigan, four children were kidnapped, held for around 19 days, and killed. The killer would then go on to dress them in freshly pressed clothing and carefully place them either on a bed of snow or in full sight near the road, which is very strange because a lot of times they place them in open view of people's homes or just an open view where the public could easily see them, but nobody ever caught a glimpse of who was putting them there. So despite causing the b- biggest police search at the time, the suspect was never found. A suspect was never found. Um, no one was ever charged with these crimes. The first child was Mark Stebbins. Sunday, February 15, 1976 in Ferndale, Michigan, Mark Stebbins left the American Legion to go home and watch TV, but never made it there. Now, listen, kids are fickle. They get distracted easily, and maybe there's a likelihood that he saw something that interested him, got distracted, wandered off, and would have been home. But that was not the case. Four days after he disappeared, Mark's body was found 12 miles from his home in a snowbank in a parking lot. He was wearing the exact same clothes he had on the day he went missing, except they were clean and pressed. His autopsy revealed that he had been hit with something and strangled. There were also rope burns on his wrist indicating that he had been tied up. So after Mark, the killer went on a little hiatus as far as we know until December when he struck again and claimed his next victim. December 22, 1976, 12-year-old Jill Robinson of Royal Oak got into an argument with her mother. You know, at our tween years, teen years, we all get into arguments with our mother, run off, walk down the road to cool off. Only when Jill packed her bag and ran away, she was never seen alive again after that. The next day, her bike was discovered behind a store located on Main Street. Three days after, her body was found lying on the side of the interstate near Troy, within full sight of the Troy police station. So whoever took her and killed her was audacious enough to go and leave her body within full view of the police station, and the police never saw who the person was. An autopsy determined, as if I mean, they're making it sound like it wasn't apparent, but an autopsy determined that she died of a shotgun blast to her face. Much like Mark, she was found fully clothed in the clothes she went missing in. Her backpack had been carefully placed beside her body, and her body was placed carefully in the snow. Not long after Jill, on January 2, 1977, around 3 p.m., Christine Milik went to a nearby 7-Eleven to buy some magazines. That was the last time she was seen. 
19 days later, a mail carrier who was on his rural route find his body. Christine was neatly dressed and strategically placed in the snow. Her eyes were closed and her arms were crossed over her chest. Despite being in a rural area, Christine was in view of several houses. Her autopsy determined that she had been smothered to death. After Christine's death, authorities came to the conclusion that there was a child killer stalking the area. A task force was formed to investigate the killings, and over the course of its time, the task force made about 24 unrelated arrests due to the discovery of a child pornography ring, as well as followed up on about 18,000 tips altogether over the course of the investigation. The next killing happened on March 6, 1977, at about 8 p.m., an 11-year-old named Timothy King left his home in Birmingham with 30 cents to buy some candy. He had a skateboard with him. He was going to a local drugstore near his home. He bought his candy, left the store, and exited through the back exit, which led to a parking lot. After that moment, it seemed as though Timothy disappeared into thin air. Authorities decided to conduct a massive search in the Detroit area since there was another apparent abduction and potentially another murder. TV and newspapers in Detroit reported heavily on Timothy's disappearance. His father appeared on TV pleading for his return. Timothy's mother, Marion, wrote a letter to the newspaper hoping that she would see her son again so she could give him his favorite meal, Kentucky Fried Chicken. The letter was printed in the Detroit News. The night of March 22nd, Timothy's body was found in a ditch on a road in Livonia. He was fully clothed, and of course, his clothes had been cleaned and pressed. His skateboard was placed neatly next to his body. His autopsy revealed that he had been sexually assaulted and smothered to death. It had also been found that his last meal, hours before his death, was fried chicken. So, whoever was doing these abductions and killings was keeping tabs on the news was obviously paying close attention to this if he found the mother's letter in the newspaper saying this and it's almost even like a taunt to her and to the police to feed timothy that before killing him before timothy's body was found a woman came forward with information about his disappearance she described seeing timothy skateboard and all standing outside in the parking lot talking to an older man the woman gave an accurate description of Timothy, along with a pretty good description of the man Timothy had been talking to and the car he drove. It was a blue AMC Gremlin with white stripes on the side. Thanks to her, the police were able to release a composite sketch of the man and of the car. The profile of the man was a white male with a dark complexion between the ages of 25 and 35, with shaggy hair and long sideburns. This person seemed to be able to easily gain the trust of children, so it was suspected that he was either a clergyman, a police officer, or a doctor. The profile goes on to describe the killer as someone who's familiar with the area and probably lived alone in a remote area since they were holding the children for several days at a time without anyone catching wind of it. A Detroit psychiatrist named Bruno Danto was a member of the task force, received Hmm. A Detroit psychiatrist named Bruce Danto, who was a member of the task force, received a letter a few weeks after Timothy was murdered. The person who wrote the letter called themselves Alan and claimed to be the roommate of the killer, whose name was Frank. Alan was supposedly Frank's sadomasochist slave. 
Alan described himself as guilt-ridden, remorseful, suicidal, and a scared individual who was on the brink of losing his mind. He said he'd gone with Alan. Alan said he'd gone with Frank on many road trips to look for boys, but was never present when the children were abducted or murdered. Alan also claimed that Frank drove a gremlin, but had jumped it in Ohio so that it would take some of the heat off. Alan tried to rationalize Frank's murders by saying that he had killed children in Vietnam and it had traumatized him so bad that he was taking revenge on rich people by making them suffer through what he had to go through in Vietnam. Alan also served in Vietnam. Alan wanted to come to an agreement in which he would offer incriminating evidence to the task force in exchange for the governor signing an agreement to grant him immunity. Alan agreed to meet with Danto at the bar. However, he never showed up and he was never heard from again. At the end of 1978, the task force was disbanded and the state police took over the investigation. There were two other children who were suspected of but never confirmed to be victims of the Oakland County killer due to how the murders were carried out. Cynthia Cadeau was 16 and she was bludgeoned to death and Jane Allen was found killed by a river just days after accepting a ride while hitchhiking. She died from carbon monoxide poisoning. Kimberly Alice disappeared September 15, 1979. Authorities believed her case was connected to the others. There was one potential suspect, Archibald Edward Sloan. He was a child molester in the area who victimized young boys. Sloan became a suspect when a hair found in his Pontiac Bonneville matched a hair found on Timothy and Mark Stebbins, but the hair was not actually Sloan's. A witness claimed to have seen Timothy being abducted by two men, one in his late 20s and one with a strong resemblance to John Wayne Gacy, okay, who was apparently in Michigan at the time of the murders. However, Gacy's DNA was not found on the bodies. Parma Heights, Ohio, police arrested Ted Lamborghini for his connection with the child porn ring in the 70s. In 2007, police said that Lamborghini was a top suspect in the case. Lamborghini pled guilty to 15 sex-related crimes rather than take the plea bargain that would have required him to take a polygraph test with questions related to Oakland County child killings. He also rejected a shortened sentence that would also require him to take a polygraph test regarding that particular case. In 2007, Mark Stebbins filed, family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Lamborghini for $25,000. The lawsuit says that Lamborghini abducted Mark, held him in the Royal Oak House for four days in the February of 1976 before smothering him to death during a sexual assault. While Lamborghini has never been officially charged or linked to the case, the family has sought compensation, including expenses to cover Mark's funeral, but they have stressed that the money is secondary. New interest sparked when Timmy King's father, Barry, and his brother, Chris, tried to get the Michigan State Police to release information about Chris Bush, the son of Harold Lee Bush, a General Motors exec. <clears throat> Chris Bush was in custody shortly before Timmy went missing for his alleged involvement with child pornography. He committed suicide in the November of 1978. However, there was no gunshot residue found on him and no blood spatter. Four shell casings were found in his room and he was also wrapped neatly under his sheets. There was a single bullet hole between his eyes. 
No blood and bloodstained ligatures were found in his apartment. As was a hand-drawn image resembling Mark Stebbins screaming, which was pinned to the wall of the room in which he committed suicide. There was no confirmed activity from the killer 20 months before Bush's death. Police reports that were obtained by Barry King provided new revelations, including DNA of new suspects and a bloody rope at the scene of Bush's death. Timothy King's sister, Catherine Broad, kept an archive, archive as the case grew. After extensive research done by the family, they released a documentary entitled Decades of Deceit. The document condemns the investigators and prosecutors for essentially doing a shitty job at investigating the case, and most importantly, ignoring leads that the King family discovered in 2006. Money generated from the film went to the Timmy King Fund that went to help abuse children and support activities for children in the Birmingham area. Honestly, I'm not saying they're wrong because good for them for making the documentary and for calling out these investigators and prosecutors but if someone made a documentary for every investigation that you know the task force police force whatever did a shitty job oh lord we'd be here forever DNA tests conducted in 2012 showed hair from the same unknown man that wasn't Sloan from earlier on the seat of Sloan's 1966 Pontiac Bonneville and on the body of Mark Stebbins and Timmy King. This implies that it was someone Sloan knew or someone he lent his vehicle to. In 2013, an anonymous informant sent police off to a blue AMC gremlin buried on a farm that was being developed. Police investigated since Timmy King was last seen in a blue gremlin. In 2005, an unidentified man who became a common character in this case, known by the alias of Jeff, was reminded of a relationship that he had in 1977 with a certain acquaintance. In an interview with Oakland County, Jeff recalled abnormal observations and occurrences while driving and talking with this acquaintance. For example, taking him to buildings in which satanic rituals had been held, The same acquaintance took Jeff through routes associated with the case that were not widely known. Very suspect. The acquaintance also knew intimate details of the letters sent by Alan, but when Jeff asked to know more about the letters, he was denied. Jeff gave a recorded interview and requested that jurisdiction of the case be placed under the Department of Justice to speed things up. Little did he know the department was already involved in the case. His requests were dismissed, and as was his request to review the letter from Alan. So this is just some random guy who kept inserting himself into the case, which tends to be um, something that guilty people do. The prosecutor, Jessica Cooper, said that their interview was a was him rambling basically blaming the oakland county killer on pagan holidays and wiccan rituals jeff stayed in touch with deborah jarvis who was the mother of one of the victims christine milik he claimed to be on a team he claimed to be on at least uh, a dozen investigative teams and involved with the case and could identify the perpetrator of the crimes but couldn't name which law enforcement team he worked with He claimed to have investigated 10,000 hours 
over several years, but was reluctant to release his results as he doubted the competence of Wayne and Oakland County investigators. In a press release email, Jeff indicated possible meddling by Jessica Cooper, who was the prosecutor at the time, and other reasons as to why he had not made his investigation public. Jeff's investigation allegedly solved the murder, but no one was ever brought to justice. However, Jeff refused to identify the culprit unless the authorities divulged crucial information, which Jeff requested during the initial phone questioning in 2010. He wanted to positively confirm the identity of his suspect using the police evidence before proceeding further. In 2012, Jeff presented his findings to a select group of Detroit journalists on um, via cell phone to preserve his anonymity. He insisted that his phone interview not be recorded. According to Jeff, there was a total of approximately 11 to 16 victims, significantly more than the four officially confirmed victims. Jeff claimed his team found a number of similarities among the cases that were highly unlikely to be purely coincidental. Based on this information, there was an attempted lawsuit against the Oakland County authorities for $100 million, citing mishandling of the investigation and demanding Cooper's resignation. The lawsuit alleged a cover-up of conspiracy and obstruction. There was a website that solicited donations and offered a copy of Jeff's report for a donation of $1,500. The families of the victims and Cooper claimed that Jeff was attempting to profit off of their distress, which is certainly what it seems like. And But this case was dismissed in March 2012 for lack of evidence. So it does, to me, in my humble opinion, sound like this random weirdo is trying to profit off of these people's grief and also just a little suspect that he keeps inserting himself into the investigation whenever he has no horse in this race. But I mean, what do I know? Um, Let me know what you guys think. Do you think it was Archibald Sloan? Do you think it was this Jeff person? Do you think Alan... And Frank were even real? Do you think it was John Wayne Gacy? Seems unlikely to me, but I mean, it's possible, I suppose. Let me know what you think. And thanks for listening. If this is your first time, welcome. If you're back, then thank you for coming back. Thank you for being a friend. I appreciate you. Everyone who listens, you're appreciated. And you guys have a great night.